because today's story is from Nehemiah, and it's all about restoration. Not restoration of a home now, but restoration of something broken in the world. If you do a search for urban restoration or neighborhood restoration, you'll find countless stories of one person who stepped forward and took it upon themselves to plant a community garden or to make repairs for seniors. You will find stories of choir directors in schools that everyone had written off, of teachers who went the second, third, and fourth miles for their students. You'll see stories of those who received refugees and made them welcome. And here at Peachtree, we have everyday heroes who dig water wells and comfort those who are trafficked. We have heroes who bring light into the darkness, heroes who sit with kids and help them with homework and backpacks and good food to eat. All of these are people who saw a crying need for restoration and stepped up. Think about it. There are situations, everyday heroes, that are of, of everyday heroes being required, like you and me, all around us every day. But we're not joining in yet. We're not sure what to restore. We don't know if we can do it. Have you ever felt God asking you, what are you going to do about the brokenness in your world? It may come to you as you're watching the news. You get the glimmer of an idea as you're speaking with a friend in the neighborhood. You're listening in church to a deep need in the city or the world, and it really presses on you. You feel God asking you, what are you going to do about it all? You've been hearing for years now that we are joining Christ daily in the restoration of all things. And sometimes it really leans on you. Where are we supposed to begin? For our quest hero today, it was easy to know what he was supposed to restore. Today we're going to look at Nehemiah. He could have written a great life strategy book about how to solve insurmountable challenges. In fact, he did. It's right in our Bible. Because of his passion and persistence, his people were able to return with joy to their own city. We're going to look at his faithful methods for tackling a work of restoration together. And my prayer and hope is that Nehemiah will help us to know how to tackle restoration projects of our own. Are you ready? Nehemiah is a Jew who's living and working in Susa, the capital of the empire of Persia, about 444 B.C., it came to him that he needed to join God in the restoration of Jerusalem. That was the work that had his name all over it. Here's a map so that you can see where his people had come from. You see the Holy Land there. And then in red, you see the city of Shushan or Susa in Persia. That's where he was living and working. You can see how far away Israel was. It's been over 150 years since Jerusalem was sacked and destroyed by the Babylonians, and many were taken into exile then. Daniel and his friends were among them. Then Persia conquered Babylon, and some exiles were allowed to return home to Jerusalem then. Some remained in Persia, like Esther and Mordecai and our hero, Nehemiah. The idea of rebuilding the temple came to the prophet Ezra, but there was still a major issue that threatened the whole project. The walls of the city of Jerusalem were still broken and destroyed. 
We've lost our sense that a city needs walls. Our own city spreads out like a beautiful giant without walls or boundaries. But in ancient and medieval times, the walls of a city were vital. This is a modern photo, but you get the idea. There are high walls of stone that can be defended from within. There are strong gates. The walls and gates kept enemies out. Those walls became a platform for defense and security. They kept people inside safe and protected. But Jerusalem, in Nehemiah's time, had no walls. In Susa, Persia, Nehemiah had a visit from his brother, Hananiah, and some of his friends. His brother had been to what was left of Jerusalem, and he told Nehemiah how it was. You will notice, by the way, as we hear the scriptures today, that Nehemiah's book is written in the first person, and it really makes the story come alive. Hananiah, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When Nehemiah hears this, he is stunned. It brings him to tears to think of Jerusalem being a ghost town. To imagine what he might feel, you can imagine how you would feel if our whole downtown was destroyed or if one of those sci-fi summer disaster movies about Washington, D.C. or New York City being wiped out really happened. He's going about his life with his really great career and he hasn't been thinking about his hometown. But now he knows his hometown is ruined and knowing He grieves. So the first step in joining God in restoration work is, first, you weep. All restoration work starts with honest grief. You can't fix what you will not acknowledge. To grieve is to be in touch with reality and with truth. So Nehemiah first weeps. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Nehemiah doesn't pretend he didn't hear. He takes the sorrow and disgrace of Jerusalem to heart. He weeps, and that's important. If restoration is going to happen, you must first realize how bad it's gotten. For anyone who's ever attempted home repairs or renovation, you know that you have to acknowledge the depth of the problems. You've got to get down past the termite damage, past the water damage, past the rotten wood and mold, and then you can really begin to restore. So first, Nehemiah grieves, and then he prays. Nehemiah takes it to God. In Nehemiah's prayer, he addresses God with honesty, confessing that he knows that neither his family nor anyone else in Israel has followed the law as they should. He asks for forgiveness for them all. He asks that God would remember his promises to his people, that if they obeyed his commandments, he would gather them from all the places they've been scattered, even to the horizon, and bring them back home from exile. He knows the reason for the exile is their sin, which brought their downfall. And he finishes his prayer like this. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant. 
Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. From time to time throughout this book, you'll notice that Nehemiah turns aside from the busy physical work and the careful mental strategizing of his day to pray, to pour out his hopes, his fears, his dreams to God. Did you notice that he prayed, grant me favor in the presence of this man? The man that he's referring to is none other than the king of the empire of Persia, Artaxerxes. Nehemiah says, I was cupbearer to the king. So he holds a very trusted position, daily tasting the king's wine and food and safeguarding his life. He's something between a sommelier and a secret service agent. So Nehemiah was highly regarded and trusted by this king. He was the very king who had received the exiles from Jerusalem and retained them away from home. This king was the very man who had left Jerusalem in ruins rather than repairing it. He didn't sack Jerusalem, the Babylonians did, but he had left it in ruins. You can understand why Nehemiah would pray that he would find favor with the king. Something to notice. This is the umpteenth time we've had a Bible hero have to take their courage in hand and make a hard request to someone in power. It's almost like God is preparing us to do that ourselves. Moses, in his time, petitioned his Pharaoh for freedom for his people. Daniel had to stand up to the unjust requests of the kings he served. Esther, we've just seen her step forward and ask the king for her people's lives. So part of the life of faith might be speaking truth to power prayerfully and with care. So how do we join God in restoration work? First we weep, then we pray, then we plan. So Nehemiah weeps, he prays, and then he plans what to say and how to say it. He goes to work that day, and as he attends the king, he let the king see his emotion about Jerusalem. And the king notices. Now remember, this is the king who stands in the line of succession with the king who Queen Esther feared to speak to. So Nehemiah comes before this king, and the king notices his sorrow, and he asks about it. This is the moment Nehemiah has been praying about. He's afraid, but he tells the king that his sorrow is over his ruined homeland. He asks... Uh, he asked the king to listen to his sorrow. He's heard about its disgrace. Its gates are burned. Its walls are nothing but rubble. Then Nehemiah must have held his breath. The king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Nehemiah prays and then he asks for what he wants, to restore Jerusalem. And the next sentence must have made his heart leap for joy. Then the king with the queen sitting beside him asked me, how long will your journey take and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. And Nehemiah has been planning. I think he probably had his bags packed and his horse saddled just in case the meeting with the king went well. 
He also remembers that he needs materials for building and letters of safe passage for the journey, so he asks for that. And what he asks for, he receives. He now has a real sense that God is blessing his project. He's remembered there will be no Home Depot when he gets there, so he needs good building materials. He asked for that. He will need letters to show that he's on a legitimate errand commissioned by the king so that anyone suspicious of his movement through their territory and anyone in Jerusalem who wonders why he's there can be shown a letter from the king, and he gets that. The king goes even farther to help, giving him something he didn't ask for by giving him officers and cavalry, and he will need them where he's going. So Nehemiah travels. He arrives in Jerusalem. By night, he makes a reconnaissance visit of the ruined city. He goes on horseback. He takes a small group with him. I went to Jerusalem And after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. Nehemiah needs to see if the restoration can even be possible. He doesn't want to ask friends to help until he's had a good luck. And so he begins to circle the broken wall, starting on the western side, looking at damage and burned gates. Each gate has a name having to do with what the gate is used for. Uh, It's named for something that will come in or go out of the gate or for a feature near the gate. And the first gate he sees is none other than the dung gate, which is a sanitation gate. And I think you could see how important that would be. He heads south and he finds the fountain gate near the water source for the city. After a stumbling circuit through the rubble all the way around, having having seen now how bad it is, Nehemiah takes a breath and says to his friends, you see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. Also, I told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. And they replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. So how do you join God in restoration work? You weep, you pray, you plan, then you build with friends. Nehemiah could not do this work of restoration alone. He needed courageous and willing helpers, those who shared his vision and his sense that God's hand was blessing the work and the workers. He was able to communicate it all so that they believed in the work too. Nehemiah's courage was contagious. Many came to help him with the work. A mixture of priests, nobles, and hard-working craftsmen came to help him. Chapter three of Nehemiah gives you some idea of how it was organized. Each part of the wall with its gates were assigned sometimes to families, sometimes to the guild that would work in the area near the gate, goldsmiths, perfumers, and the like. Priests worked near the temple. He seems to have assigned people to their part of the walls that would be near someplace dear to their hearts. That's a very smart way to organize. I know if I worked on the wall near my own home, it would mean a lot to me. For example, the the fish gate was where fresh fish were brought into the city for sale, and probably Nehemiah assigned fishing families to build that gate and the walls near it. 
Now, not everyone is willing to work. The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. Did you catch that? Some people thought they were too fancy to do this work or to be supervised by someone else. Entitlement issues are not a new invention of ours. None of us are too fancy to join in with restoration work. But not all the nobles slacked off. Rephiah, son of Hur, ruler of a half-district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section. He was a man of standing, and yet he worked with everyone else. Finally, we read about another man of standing. Shalom, son of Halohesh, ruler of a half-district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section with the help of his daughters. That's my favorite part. The daughters worked hard alongside their father. It makes me think of Rosie the Riveter. Strong girls. Your Quest Bible has a lot of good information on the builders and the city and its plan. And if you love maps, there's a good map of the city on page 699. You know how hard this work was if you've ever worked in construction in wood or stone. Was this restoration work nothing but roses and delight? No because not only was the work really hard, but there were enemies. You build with friends, but you deal with enemies. Nehemiah and his restorers had enemies. Not everyone likes to see things that are ruined come back to life, and they start with accusations of treason. But when Sanballat the Horonite Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard about it. They mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you're doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? You remember, Nehemiah got those letters to prove he was there with the permission of the king. I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. Sanballat, whose name means bramble bush, was a governor of Samaria to the north of the city of Jerusalem. Tobiah, whose name means God is good, but Tobiah was not ruled the area across the Jordan to the east of Jerusalem. Geshem the Arab, whose name means rain, like from the sky, was one of their cronies. These three rotten apples presided over the area of Jerusalem, which was ruined and which was without a governor. They did not want somebody coming into that power vacuum and running that city. All of them were under the jurisdiction of the king of Persia, including Nehemiah, his own cupbearer. So the first accusation they have is to question Nehemiah's loyalty to him. He tells them they have nothing to do with Jerusalem and they never will. Notice that a good bit of the next part of Nehemiah's story intertwines stories of the enemies and their efforts to stop the building and stories of his friends who are helping him to rebuild. You build with friends, you deal with enemies. The longer he and his friends build and the higher the walls get, the more his enemies ridicule him and the project. Sanballat said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? 
Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, what they are building, even a fox climbing up on it would break down their wall of stones. These jokers. What does Nehemiah do in the face of this ridicule? First, he prays. Hear us, our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Notice that in Nehemiah's prayer, he leaves vengeance to God. He asks God to handle it. In this time when we see a news story every single day about people shooting each other over minor matters, it's worth noticing that Nehemiah, with much more provocation, leaves comeuppance in the hands of the Lord. Then he and his friends double their efforts in building the wall. They're halfway done. Their hearts are singing. We rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their hearts. When you're working with good friends, even criticism and enemies cannot stop you from working together. Nehemiah's enemies notice uneasily that progress on the wall is accelerating. They decide words are not enough now. Now that the gaps in the walls are closing and the height of the walls is rising, they think maybe it's time now for a military intervention or at least some guerrilla attacks. But rather than drop everything and run, Nehemiah and the builders keep building, but with a different set of tools in hand. There's a good shot of Nehemiah with his sword on his hip, and he is directing the work. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. You see the fellow with the spear. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. From that day on, half my men did the work. All the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and had a weapon in the other hand. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. Nehemiah and the builders make adjustments to the way they work because of their enemies, but they never stop building. They resist. They prepare to defend themselves, but they do not lash out. They leave that to God. They keep their energy for the restoration work. In the same way, when we do any work of restoration, we should realize there are people and institutions who are opposed to what we are restoring. If we're building like Nehemiah, we will let God sort them out. We will be aware of them, but we will reserve our energy for the work God has put in our hands. We will keep building. At last, as the project is almost done, the enemies are desperate. They try to lure Nehemiah out of the city. Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. By the way, if your enemy ever tries to get you to meet with them on the plain of Ono, I, I would not go. But they were scheming to harm me, so I sent messengers to them with this reply. I'm carrying on a great project, and I cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? 
After all their scheming, the enemies are not able to stop Nehemiah and the great work of restoration. He knows how vital his work is. He cannot come down. He prays again, now strengthen my hands. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. Did you ever have a restoration project that went that fast? Not me. 52 days to rebuild the wall. I think that is amazing. Now you might think that Nehemiah's work was done, but the people need restoration too. You restore people, not just buildings. Now Nehemiah has become the de facto governor of the city with the finished walls and gates in place, he becomes aware that there is injustice that does not befit God's people. We've seen trouble like this before in other books of the Old Testament, and we'll keep seeing it in the New. Nehemiah discovers that the richer Jews have been cheating poorer ones out of money and property, even making them sell their children into slavery to get the money to pay their rich neighbors for food and taxes. And he calls the wealthy citizens out. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are charging your own people interest? Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses, and also the interest you are charging them, 1% of the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised, trust but verify, right? As they come into the renewed city, Nehemiah restores not just the walls and the gates, but the relationship between rich and poor. And he makes the rich swear an oath not to abuse their neighbors any longer. As he writes his memoir, he says, remember me with favor, my God, for all I have done for these people. Nehemiah knew that restoration is about more than buildings. It's about a just and gracious life together. Last but not least, the happy ending. After weeping, praying, planning, building with friends, dealing with enemies, restoring the people, you finish the celebration, the restoration, and you celebrate together. Ezra, who has restored the temple, and Nehemiah, who has restored the walls, gather the people in Jerusalem for a celebration. All the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. He read it aloud from daybreak until noon as he faced the square before the water. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law, daybreak until noon. And you thought this sermon was long. As they listened, the people began to weep. They realize how far they have fallen from the law and how much of their own faith they don't remember. They realize there is still some work of restoration on their own hearts yet to be done. But this was supposed to be a celebration. Nehemiah gives them some words of kindness and he reminds them it's not a day for tears, but a day to celebrate their shared work of restoration. Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now we know the rhythm of a work of restoration. 
We know how to start, how to plan and persist, how to bond with friends and defend the work from enemies. We know to restore not just buildings or institutions, but the people as well. And we can hear how good it was to celebrate together. The message of this book is we can do great work together. Do you remember at the beginning how Nehemiah was shocked and saddened and wept about the ruin of his city? Here at the end of his story, I want to tell you what his name means. It means comforted by God. And you and I, as we join Christ daily in the restoration of all things, will bring us and many others comfort as we work together and joy to the heart of God. Won't you pray with me now? Dear Lord, we remember that we live in a world that is broken and torn and we don't want to hide or ignore that any longer. We want to join you. We want to do a great work for you that we cannot leave until it is finished. Lord, strengthen our hands. Show us the work you would have us to do for you. Show us the work that has our name on it. In Jesus' name, amen.